Chapter 18 of The Suffragette, The History of the Women's Militant Suffrage Movement by E. Sylvia Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 18. January to March 1909. Reminding the Cabinet Council of Votes for Women. Attempts by the Women's Freedom League to interview Mr. Asquith. Arrest of Mrs. Despard. The Seventh Woman's Parliament. Arrest of Mrs. Pethick Lawrence and Lady Constance Lytton. Mr. Geoffrey Howard's Reform Bill. The Eighth Woman's Parliament. Speaking in December 1908 on the policy of his government in the new year, Mr. Asquith had declared that the stream of advice as to what he should do next session was pouring in upon him both night and day, and that he was constantly receiving deputations who came to him from all quarters and in all causes on an average of something like two hours on three days in every week. These deputations all asked for different things, but were all agreed that their measure must be mentioned in the king's speech, and that the best hours, or at all events some of the best hours, of the session must be given to its special consideration. And the worst of it is, he went on, that I am disposed myself to agree with them all, for, as each group in their turn come to me, I recognize in them some of our most loyal and fervent supporters. Thus Mr. Asquith was constantly receiving deputations of men, and, as he here admitted, the deputations were helping him to decide what measures he must include in the next king's speech, but he again refused to receive a deputation of the women. Therefore, when the first cabinet council of the season met on January 25th, members of the Women's Social and Political Union called at Number 10 Downing Street to urge their claims again as they had done last year. For knocking at the door, four of them were arrested, and at Bow Street, where for administrative reasons all suffragette cases were in future to be tried, they were ordered to go to prison for one month. They went cheerfully, for Mrs. Clark, a sister of Mrs. Pankhurst, voiced the feelings of all when during her trial, she said, I felt that it was not I who was knocking at the Prime Minister's door, but the great need of women knocking at the conscience of the nation, and demanding that justice shall be done. Next day it was the members of the Women's Freedom League who strove to obtain an interview with Mr. Asquith, and in consequence six of their number were arrested in Victoria Street on their way to the official residence, sixteen at the entrance to Downing Street, and six, including Mrs. Despard and Mr. Joseph Clayton, a journalist, who protested on their behalf, at the door of the stranger's entrance to the House of Commons. The resulting sentences varied from one month to fourteen days' imprisonment. Little notice was given of these imprisonments, the press evidently thinking such sensations stale. But those active inventive brains at Clement's Inn were determined not to be checkmated, and were ever devising new stratagems and new surprises as a means of pushing the cause forward. When Mr. Churchill visited Newcastle to inspect a battleship on December 4th and 5th, he was approached on the first of these days no fewer than fifteen times, and on the second almost constantly by women who met him at the station, at the door of his hotel, at a reception held in his honour, on the pier, on the launch, on the ship itself, and again at every turn on landing, and who presented him with copies of Votes for Women, urged the cause upon him in brief hurried reminders, and made speeches to him from neighbouring boats. Every other minister was similarly waylaid. When Parliament met, and the King's speech was found to contain no mention of votes for women, the WSPU decided that another woman's Parliament must be held, and another deputation of women must be sent out from it. Then again, something that had never been done before had to be contrived for focusing public attention upon this event. 
Quite opportunely, the postmaster-general happened to issue new regulations making it possible to post human letters. Of course, it was at once determined to post some suffragettes as letters to Mr. Asquith in Downing Street. Accordingly, on Tuesday morning, January 23rd, Jesse Kenny dispatched Miss Solomon and Miss McClellan from the Strand Post Office. Then, in charge of a little messenger boy, one carrying a placard inscribed, Votes for Women, Deputation to the House of Commons, Wednesday, and the other to the Right Honorable H. H. Asquith, 10 Downing Street, as W., the two ladies marched off to the official residence. When they arrived, the messenger boy was invited inside and the door was shut, but after a few moments it was opened again, and an official appeared, saying to the women, You must be returned. But we have been paid for, they protested, and he replied, The post office must deliver you somewhere else. You cannot be received here. An express letter is an official document, they persisted, and must be signed for according to the regulations. But the official replied, You cannot be signed for. You must be returned. You are dead letters. So there was nothing for it but to go back to Clement's Inn. Another day, a facsimile of Black Maria, the van which takes the prisoners to Holloway, was seen driving through the town. It bore the inscription E.P. for Emmeline Pankhurst instead of E.R. Edward Rex, and a man dressed almost exactly like a policeman rode on the back step. When the van reached Regent Street, a body of women in imitation prison dress emerged and proceeded to distribute handbills to the passers-by and to chalk announcements of the forthcoming deputation to Mr. Asquith upon the pavement. The members of the Women's Freedom League also hit upon a new and striking advertisement, for Miss Matters, the heroine of the grill scene, floated over the House of Commons in a cigar-shaped dirigible balloon painted with the fateful words, Votes for Women. Ridiculous, petty, even unworthy of serious people, you may think, were some of these methods of propaganda and advertisement, but the suffragettes knew only too well that the cause which does not advance cannot remain stationary, but slips back into the limbo of forgotten things. On February 24th, the Seventh Woman's Parliament met in the Caxton Hall. Mrs. Pethick Lawrence sallied forth from it with a number of women in her train, but she and twenty-eight of her comrades, including Lady Constance Lytton and Miss Daisy D. Solomon, the daughter of the late Prime Minister of the Cape, were soon arrested. Their trial took place before Sir Albert de Rutzen at Bow Street next day, and on refusing to be bound over to keep the peace, they received sentences of from one to two months' imprisonment. There were now many members, both of the Women's Social and Political Union and of the Women's Freedom League in Holloway, and one day, whilst they were exercising together, a member of the latter organization, Mrs. Meredith MacDonald, a lady in middle life, fell on the frosty stones. Two of her fellow prisoners ran to help her, but the wardress forced them away, and though she said she believed her thigh to be injured, she was forced to drag herself unaided to her cell. Her request to see her own doctor was refused, and not until she became unable even to turn in her bed was she removed to the prison hospital. When at last the x-rays were applied, it was found that her thigh was fractured and that, owing to the long delay and lack of poor treatment, she would be lame for life. The matter was reported to the Home Secretary with a demand for redress, but no result followed until June 1910, more than a year afterwards, when legal proceedings having been instituted, the authorities at last agreed to pay Mrs. MacDonald £500 damages and her legal costs, amounting to an equal sum. 
Meanwhile, a place for a woman's suffrage measure had been won in the private member's ballot by Mr. Geoffrey Howard, a liberal member of Parliament and son of the Countess of Carlisle. Mr. Howard and the Women's Suffrage Committee of Liberal Members with whom he was working decided to abandon the old Equal Bill and to introduce a complicated reform measure on the lines of that foreshadowed by Mr. Asquith in his famous promise of the previous year, except that, in this case, votes for women was to form part of the original measure instead of being left to come in as an amendment. Under this private member's reform bill, the only condition required for registration as a parliamentary voter was to be that the person registered, whether man or woman, should be of full age and have resided for not less than three months within the same constituency. It was estimated that the bill would qualify some 15 million new voters, 12 million of whom would be women, and would thus nearly treble the number at present entitled to exercise the franchise. Note 33 it would, at the same time, abolish plural voting. The professed object of bringing forward this measure was to meet the stipulation put forward by Mr. Asquith and Mr. Lord George that votes should not be given to women except on democratic lines. On Friday, March 19th, the bill came up for second reading, and Mr. Howard, in explaining its provisions, said that he had no hope of carrying it into law, but merely wished to clear the air for the reform bill presented by the government. Sir Charles McLaren said that he hoped this bill might help the government to come to some decision as to the manner in which they would deal with the woman's suffrage question next year. But when Mr. Asquith arose to make the expected government pronouncement, he declared that the opinion of the government was unchanged and entirely unaffected by the introduction of this bill. He added, however, that there were certain proposals contained in the measure of which he approved, but carefully explained that his approval only extended so far as the bill referred to men. Though he was aware that the measure would not be pressed beyond a second reading, he stated that the members of the government would abstain from voting either for or against it. The whole debate, therefore, ended in fiasco and had been merely a wasted opportunity. After Mr. Asquith's pronouncement, the House divided and there voted. For the bill, 157. Against the bill, 122. Majority for the bill, 35. It will be thus seen that this bill of Mr. Howard's secured a very much smaller measure of support than that which had been accorded to the Equal Women's Enfranchisement Bill in the previous year, for the figures had then been, for the bill, 271 against 92, majority for the bill, 179. The Women's Social and Political Union now decided that another deputation should attempt to obtain an interview with Mr. Asquith, and an eighth Women's Parliament was held on March 30th. Mrs. Saul Solomon, widow of the Governor-General of South Africa, an elderly, motherly figure, volunteered to lead its deputation of thirty women who were to carry the usual resolution to the House, whilst Miss Dora Marsden, B.A., of Manchester, looking exactly like a Florentine angel, marched before with a purple, white, and green standard announcing the arrival of the deputation. As soon as the women reached the street, the usual pushing and hustling by the police began, and after an hour's brave struggle, eleven of them were arrested. Next day, nine of those who had not been taken again returned to the charge, and eventually the twenty women were sent to prison at Sir Albert de Rutson's orders, nineteen of them for one month, and Patricia Woodlock, because she had served several sentences already, for three. On April 16th, Mrs. Pethick Lawrence, our dear treasurer, was released, and we were able to tell her that no less than eight thousand pounds had been collected by the sacrifice of our members during self-denial week. 
A great procession was formed in her honor and marched from the Marble Arch to the Aldwych Theatre, where she was to speak. What a day it was to welcome anyone from prison! The trees were just bursting into leaf, and the brilliant April sunshine glistened on the silver armor of Elsie Howie, who represented Joan of Arc, the warrior maid, whose beatification was taking place that very day, and rode at the head of the procession astride her great white charger, with the brisk wind blowing back her fair hair, and gaily fluttering the purple, white, and green standard which she bore. Then came women and girls with flowers and banners, and Mrs. Lawrence's own carriage covered with flags, and everywhere were the purple, white, and green colors, except at one point where the American delegates to the International Women's Suffrage Congress, then sitting in London, rode in a carriage draped with their own stars and stripes. Inside the theater, the platform was covered with flowers sent by hundreds of members and friends, and there, too, the American delegates had added their tribute, a little silk copy of their national flag. It was a wonderful speech that Mrs. Lawrence then delivered, full, not only of enthusiasm and deep feeling, but of logic and common sense, and of unanswerable arguments for the women's cause. She reminded us that she and her fellow suffragists had gone to prison in support of the old English constitutional maxim that taxation and representation should go together. Before she had gone to prison, she told us, a birthday book had been shown to her that had been got out for church bazaar. In that book, Mr. Asquith had been asked to write his favorite quotation with his signature, and this favorite quotation of Mr. Asquith's had turned out to be, Taxation without representation is tyranny. Many stories she told us of what she had seen and heard in prison. One morning, the chaplain had come into the hospital where she was and had called up an old woman to speak to him. Everyone there had heard the conversation that passed between them, and had learnt in reply to his peremptory questioning her name, her age, the length of her sentence, and so on. She was seventy-six, unmarried, and for the first time in her long life she was now imprisoned because she could not pay her rent and taxes three pounds sixteen shillings. "'I keep a lodging-house for working men,' she said. "'It has been a very bad winter for my lodgers, and they have not been able to pay me.' This woman was quite good enough to pay taxes, said Mrs. Lawrence. This old woman of seventy-six, and to go to prison, when she could not meet the taxes, and yet she was not counted fit to exercise a vote. Mrs. Lawrence also told us of a conversation between herself and the chaplain. I have heard a great deal of you, Mrs. Lawrence, he had said. You have started holiday homes for girls. I wish you would start a holiday home for wardresses. You see, they work very hard, twelve hours a day. They very often break down, and then they have not enough money to go away on holiday. I looked at him in amazement, Mrs. Lawrence told us, to think that a government servant should come to me, a voteless woman, and suggest that I should supply a deficiency created because our legislators do not pay their women servants enough. So argument followed argument, and there were many suffragettes who joined the union on that day. Ever since the night on which the members of the Freedom League had changed themselves to the grill and pieces of that historic monument of prejudice had been taken down, whilst two men in the strangers' gallery had loudly demanded votes for women, the galleries had been closed, and though press representatives had still leave to come and go, as far as the general public was concerned, the House had sat in secret conclave for six months. Members of Parliament found the exclusion of all visitors to the House to be exceedingly inconvenient, and at last the government introduced what it called a brawling bill, which was to settle the question by providing that 
any person not being a member of either house of parliament while present in the palace of westminster during the sitting of either house who is guilty of disorderly conduct or acts in contravention of any rule or order of the house in respect of the admission of strangers shall be guilty of misdemeanour and liable to summary conviction and imprisonment for a term not exceeding six months or to a fine not exceeding one hundred pounds in bringing the bill forward the attorney-general urged that though the house could already punish strangers who broke its rules by committing them to newgate prison their imprisonment there could only last whilst the house was sitting so that those who committed an offence towards the close of the session would be too easily let off moreover the house had not the power to punish offenders without debate and for it to suspend its consideration of high matters in order to discuss the cases of persons who though he declared that no offence could be more serious than theirs he yet characterized as unworthy in themselves of further consideration than any ordinary police magistrate could give them was to play the game of the disturbers and to give them the maximum of advertisement with the minimum of punishment when someone pointed out that all accused persons liable to six months imprisonment were entitled to trial by jury he at once stated that he should prefer to reduce the proposed term of imprisonment to three months finally he recommended the bill to the house as one that would save its time and safeguard its dignity lord balcares urged that any one charged under the bill would have the right to subpoena the speaker of the chairman of committee who had witnessed the occurrence complained of to give evidence at the trial it would be impossible he said to say that mr speaker must not be summoned because he represented the quintessence of the collective wisdom of the house of commons and it would be a most deplorable thing if the speaker and other officials and members of the house were to be hauled into court for no other reason than to draw public attention to the police court proceedings and to make sensational paragraphs in the evening papers mr mooney an irish member said amid great laughter that he thought the bill must have been drafted in the neighbourhood of clement's inn because of the advertisement it would give to certain propagandists whilst mr hazelton declared that the government were merely setting up an act of parliament as an aunt sally for every suffragette to come along and have a shot at mr keir hardy stated that in his opinion the bill was only necessary because of the failure of members of the government and members of the house to redeem their election pledges in regard to woman's suffrage and that it was because women felt that they could no longer appeal to the honour of the house of commons that they had taken to extreme measures in his reply the attorney-general ignored this latter view of the case but dealt at length with the right of summoning witnesses pointing to the setting aside of the subpoenas to Mr. Asquith and Mr. Herbert Gladstone, in the case of Mrs. Bain's trial at Leeds, as a proof that this could easily be done again to protect the officers of the House, and especially the great officers, from being summoned. He promised that stringent provisions with this object should be added in committee, saying, I do not think the House need trouble itself with that objection. Evidently, therefore, the gradual sweeping away of every safeguard of a free people against coercion, which had been won for us by the suffering and sacrifice and ceaseless effort of generation of our forebears was as nothing to the government in comparison with the staving off of the woman's claim to vote now it was one of the fundamental rights of the accused person that they were proposing to tamper with but the house would not agree sir edward carson whilst expressing doubt as to the practicability of the government's proposals protested emphatically against the suggestion that there should be a law of subpoena for the house of commons different to that which prevailed in the rest of the land finally the prime minister rose to say that though after the trouble that had been taken in drafting it he did not like to withdraw the bill altogether he yet thought that further time should be given for consideration and that the debate should be adjourned the brawling bill was never heard of again 
Its final death blow was dealt on April 27th, exactly a week after it had been discussed, when five suffragettes effectively showed that no threat of a brawling bill could prevent them from demonstrating in the House of Commons by entering St. Stephen's Hall and chaining themselves to the statues of five men, Walpole, Lord Summers, Selden, and Lord Falkland, whose names are famous in the struggle for British liberties in Stuart days. Having so chained themselves, the women addressed the visitors and members of Parliament, explaining that they themselves were engaged in fighting for the liberties of one half of the British people. With strong pincers the police succeeded in breaking the chains, but there was no prosecution, and shortly afterwards the Speaker announced that both the ladies' and strangers' galleries were to be reopened on certain conditions. Before being admitted, each visitor must now subscribe his or her name and address to the following printed pledge. I undertake to abstain from making any interruption or disturbance and to obey the rules for the maintenance of order in the galleries. Having signed the pledge, men visitors were to be absolutely trusted, but women were treated as having absolutely no sense of honor, for no woman was to be permitted to get even so far as the signing of the pledge, unless she happened to be related to a member of Parliament, and no member was to be allowed to introduce any lady to the gallery unless he had previously won a place for her in the ballot. On May 13th, the Women's Social and Political Union opened in the Prince's Skating Rink, Knightsbridge, a Votes for Women exhibition in the purple, white, and green. Mrs. Lawrence and the committee of the union were driven thither by a woman chauffeur in a motor-car for which the suffragettes had subscribed in order that they might present it to the treasurer on her release from prison. The rink was covered outside with a mass of waving flags in the colors, and inside these also predominated. The theme of the decorations which lined the walls of the great central hall was, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy, and he that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And indeed, in those bright spring days at the skating rink, though the victory of the franchise was not yet won, some of the fruits of the struggle were already present in the glad comradeship of the workers. Everyone seemed to be full of high spirits, and all were keenly interested in the success of the enterprise, and, in spite of the strenuous militant tactics in which they were engaged, and of all the propaganda work which they were accomplishing, every branch of the Union and every organizing center had its stall laden with goods. Friends from all over the world had sent their contributions, and the Norwegian delegates to the International Suffrage Congress had a stall of their own in aid of the WSPU funds. But this was no mere bazaar, for at every turn one was reminded of votes for women. Each day as one entered, a ballot paper was always pressed into one's hand, and every visitor to the exhibition was invited to record a vote upon some question of the moment, the ballot box and everything connected with the voting being arranged just exactly as it is in parliamentary elections. At one end of the hall was a facsimile of a prison cell, in which sat a woman in second-division prison dress who herself had actually been to Holloway, and could explain exactly how the bed was rolled and the tins were cleaned. Side by side with this was the sort of cell which may be occupied by men political prisoners. Ranged along one wall were glass cases containing clever little cartoon models prepared by sculptors in the Union and showing numerous representations of cabinet ministers in their various encounters with the suffragettes. Amongst a host of others, there was Mrs. Pankhurst and her deputation at the door of the House of Commons, with the cabinet ministers hiding fearfully behind a group of stalwart police. Then there was a picture gallery of press photographs showing the history of the militant movement, 
and there were entertainments, all about votes for women, by those ardent suffragists, the members of the Actresses' Franchise League. The exhibition lasted a fortnight, and at the end of the first week came a great surprise, for a woman's drum and fife band consisting of members of our union who had been practicing in secret for months past, now dressed in a specially designed uniform of purple, white, and green, formed up in the center of the rink, and with Mrs. Lee as drum major, marched out playing the Marseillaise, and then went round the town to advertise the exhibition. Hundreds of new members were made during the fortnight, and perhaps the smallest part of the whole achievement was that 5,564 pounds was added to the WSPU campaign fund. Altogether, it was decided that the exhibition in the colors was the smartest, brightest, and cheeriest exhibition that anyone had ever seen. Strangers visiting it said, What happy women you suffragettes are! We never thought you were like that. To those who read of this movement in future years, it may seem strange that, in spite of the unremitting character of the struggle, the suffragettes, when not actually engaged in the fighting line, should have been so generally merry and light-hearted. W. D. Howells, in his Venetian Life, and others, tell us that whilst Venice was dominated by Austria, the whole town was under a cloud. The Italians gave no balls, dinners, or entertainments, and even the great opera house was closed but the attitude of the suffragettes was perhaps more in keeping with the English character. Have we not heard that though the Spanish Armada had long been expected, Drake and the other great sea-fighters were playing bowls when the news came that it was in sight? And now, whilst the exhibition was in progress, the fighting campaign was going forward all over the country as briskly as ever. Note 34 the protests in connection with cabinet ministers' meetings continued almost daily, and whilst the strictest precautions were taken to keep them out, the greatest ingenuity was displayed by them in obtaining an entry. At a meeting of Mr. Burroughs in the Colston Hall, Bristol, two women were found to have hidden themselves among the pipes of the organ. When the same minister spoke with Lord Crewe at Liverpool, Mary Phillips, who had lain crouching for twenty-four hours amid the dust and grime in a narrow space under the organ, was there to remind them of Patricia Woodlock, the Liverpool suffragette who was then serving a sentence of three months' imprisonment in Holloway Jail. Meanwhile, during the spring of 1909, eight by-election contests had been fought at Glasgow, Hoyk Burroughs, Forfer, South Edinburgh, Croydon, East Edinburgh, the Attercliffe Division of Sheffield, and Stratford-on-Avon. The Scotch constituencies, with the exception of Glasgow, which is not typically Scotch, were the most difficult to fight, for the majority of the Scotch people have long been so rootedly liberal that a very exceptional degree, not only of sympathy with the cause but of belief in the by-election policy, was needed to induce any of the electors to alter their old allegiance and to allow a conservative to be returned. Nevertheless, the liberal majority was in every case reduced. In Glasgow, the seat which had been held by a Liberal was wrested from the government by a Liberal majority of 2,113. At Croydon, the Liberal candidate was also defeated by a greatly increased majority, for whilst in the general election it had been 638, it was now 3,948. The elections at Attercliffe and Stratford-on-Avon were perhaps the most striking of the series. In the former contest, the Liberals strove to counteract the suffragette influence in numerous ways, including the issuing of leaflets with such headings as Working Men Don't Be Fooled by Mrs. Pankhurst and Suffragette and Tory Lies Nailed to the Counter. In these documents, they tried to lead the public to think that the police and not the government in power were responsible for the suffragist imprisonments, 
when the result of the polling was made known, it was found that the Liberal nominee had been placed third on the poll, having secured less than half the votes which had been cast for his party in the last election. At Stratford-on-Avon, another Liberal seat, the government candidate was again routed, this time by a majority of 2,627 votes. Footnotes 33. Estimate given by the Liberal Daily Chronicle. Note 34. The Freedom League had also held a successful and interesting green, white, and gold affair at the Caxton Hall. End of chapter 18.